Welcome to another episode of Facts. As we're going through the scriptures, their authenticity, as well as engaging the arguments of the skeptic or those who would oppose the scriptural text, saying that they are not truly uh, inspired texts or that they cannot be traced to authentic sources, which is most commonly the argument that uh, we are facing today, is that even if these texts can be uh, seen and reconstructed with textual criticism and things like that, there's no way to actually match and say that these are coming from authentic sources who were with Jesus, who knew Jesus, or were the apostles that they claim to be. And as a result, it stems into multiple arguments and discussions that could take you down theology debates, historical debates, uh, authenticity debates when it comes to prophetic nature of its claims or whether you're dealing with did they have the right or the authority to do something or say something like that. There's so many debates that come off of a canonical debate. Because if these texts can be traced to authentic sources, if they can be traced to those who are with Jesus, commissioned by Jesus, specifically in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, if they can be traced to an, uh, an authentic prophet who spoke to the nations, and he actually did speak to them on behalf of God, the ramifications of that are abundant and, and eternal. And therefore, all of humanity stands in a position of responsibility before our creator, before the God who is behind these prophets, behind the God who is behind the apostles. And we are, as humans, responsible to their message. We are responsible to take heed, uh, repent, obey, believe uh, the message of these messengers, if it truly can be traced as we are looking at and as they have claimed to be. Today's episode is going to be on the book of the Revelation, if you would. And I, I would rather call it the Apocalypse of John. And looking at it, it is the revelation. It is an unveiling, if you would. That is what the word means, apocalypsis in Greek. It does not mean uh, end times, as it is often said. Well, we're right at the apocalypse, and uh, we're in the apocalypse now, or we're so close you can almost feel the apocalypse, statements like that. And uh, what they're doing and what people are saying when they use that terminology is they're insinuating apocalypse means end of the world. Uh, but that's not what apocalypsis means in Greek. It means to reveal or to unveil something that was hidden, to bring to light something that was once covered in darkness. Uh, the word for end times is eschatos. It is where we get the word eschatology. And many of you who list this program, perhaps you've taken a class on eschatology, the study of end times or the end things, the end of the world. Uh, it should be noted that apocalyptic literature itself, I did an entire class on this in my church at Fellowship Greenville a semester ago, had a blast doing it. Wasn't really sure how I felt about it at first, but ended up enjoying it when it was all said and done. Uh, but did 12 weeks on apocalyptic literature. It was one of the best studies I ever did. One of the most enjoyable studies I did with the class. Uh, I had people young and older all in one class working through 
different types of texts, everything from canonical texts to pseudo apocryphal works to apocryphal works themselves. We went into multiple texts to look at the literary forms of apocalyptic literature. And some of that I want to share with you today, but just so it is stated, apocalyptic literature does not mean end times in its essence. It can reflect that. There is a form within apocalyptic literature called apocalyptic eschatology, which would definitely be more what people are using in that term today. But as a whole, it does not just mean the end of the world. It could have immediate ramifications, as it did in a lot of Daniel's prophecies. Not all of them, but some of them were immediate uh, revealings. And the same thing with Ezekiel dealing with those in exile. He had a lot of revealings uh, of truths in that time. Now, the origins of this style of writing, which is the composition and the layout of the book of Revelation, uh, from a biblical worldview, apocalyptic literature really began to present itself in the 6th century BC. Some would say even into the 7th, going back to some of the works of Isaiah, especially in the last few chapters of Isaiah, you start to see certain genre show itself from chapter 56 to 66. And it kind of reveals a time and an origin to where this kind of writing became famous to the Jews. Uh, it became prominent, especially during exile. Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah were very big in using this kind of term uh, and dealing with that kind of genre in their literature. Because at times they'll go from narrative and then apocalyptic imagery. And then sometimes they do narrative, Hebrew poetry, and then apocalyptic literature, and then flip back again and go through different literary forms. There's also other works uh, in the apocryphal text. First through fourth Enoch are completely apocalyptic in nature. Uh, second Esdras, or fourth Ezra, if you would, uh, is all a part of that genre as well. The Sirach has forms of it. Second Maccabees has forms of it. There's many more. They use these formations and styles and literary forms that even John, who I believe wrote the book of Revelation, borrows their formats and styles in his work. And I'm going to talk about why that's the case in just a minute. As a whole, when you look at the timeline, when you're talking about first through fourth Enoch, or whether you're talking about sections of third Maccabees, second Maccabees, fourth Maccabees, fourth Ezra, when you start getting into it, or the apocalypse of Abraham, these were all created exile and post-exile. You could literally say it's the Jewish writing of exiles. And the role of this genre is to keep the Jewish faith really alive. And they were giving people prophetic statements that were made by the prophets of God in the past or maybe even a new revelation to one of the prophets of God. And they gave an imagery form to it. I mean, we enjoy this kind of narrative in a way. If you think about it, a lot of us enjoy picture forms of proclaimed truth. Uh, we even like movies that give an image to a spoken truth. For example, many of you have probably seen things like 
C.S. Lewis's work on the Chronicles of Narnia. There's so much truth behind the imagery, whether you're talking about the lion or the witch or or those that were there in figure form. The same thing can be said of Tolkien's great uh, work of the Lord of the Rings and its imagery and what it bears, its cities, its people, its its characters. All of those are giving a, a picture or an image of a truth. And that's what apocalyptic literature is designed to do. It became used... By very few, but yet it does get used by some of the New Testament writers. Jesus, in his preaching, specifically in the Olivet Discourse, uses a form of apocalyptic teaching. Jude has one little section where almost borrowing and piggybacking off of Jesus' apocalyptic teaching, which we talked about when I did the book of uh, James. And then Jude doing the same thing that James does, except in far more detail. Second uh, Peter chapter 3 uses forms of it. But the main focal book that uses the form of apocalyptic literature is the book of Revelation. Now, after the writings of John, which I believe is John the Apostle, when it came to his writings on the island of Patmos, you begin to see a resurgence of this kind of literature in Christian communities. You had a massive output of it going on from the time of Isaiah's ending and his prophecies all the way through really that Maccabean war time into Jesus's teachings. But the writing of Revelation really brought it back to a circular form that the church kind of fell in love with just as the early exile Christian communities did. And I think it comes down to the idea of being an exile. I really believe that's what it's all about. That's what First and Second Peter are dealing with is people that are exiles. They're outcasts in their own society because they believe truth when others won't. That's what James was getting at in his epistle. So when we're talking about these works, you see more come on the scene. You have the apocalypse of Peter, the apocalypse of Paul, the first apocalypse of James, the second apocalypse of James. The most insignificant and significant works are known throughout the early church using this form. Even one of the most prominent after the book of Revelation is the shepherd of Hermas, also known as the shepherd. And it's even longer of a visionary form than what you find in the book of Revelation. So this is a major portion of scripture that is dedicated to this one simple genre, although there is some epistle literary forms that are in the book of Revelation, though there are statements of narrative in some ways, uh, but as a whole, it is apocalyptic in its nature. In fact, the very first words are the apocalypses of Jesus Christ in verse one. So the immediate question that has to be asked is who is Jesus being revealed to in the book of Revelation? Now, some of you are listening to this podcast and usually by this point, we jump in immediately to the historical argument. And by the way, we're going to be getting there in a minute. But what I want to do in this program today is I actually want to introduce the genre, talk about why I believe it is significant to dating the book of Revelation and pointing us to its author and his format. 
So what I'm doing is I'm going to show today that the literary form, the historical understanding of the literary form, its usage in the book of Revelation will help us not only date the book of Revelation, find its author, and find the consistency of the cooperating that we want to do with the historical data that we have. But in verse 1, you have this unveiling of Jesus Christ. The question is, is who is Jesus being revealed to? Who delivered the message? What was the message about? And where was the message being delivered? Here's, here's some basic, quick answers. Jesus was being revealed to his servants. Notice it did not say churches, although it addressed seven churches in Asia Minor. The angel delivered Jesus's message to John. Now, right off the beginning of the book, we have a statement that the recipient of this message, this unveiling, if you would, is John, who is to take it as a messenger, deliver it to the others. The message was about revealing Jesus Christ in the events that must catch the, the words here, soon take place. The events that are going to be penned in the book of Revelation are not necessarily thousands of years off in the distance. A lot of the events that are being proclaimed here are to take place in the near future. And the message was delivered to John. So you have a statement of person of interest within the text. Now, with the Gospels, we talked about how they are biographies and that they did not include themselves except through epithets or uh, using names of descriptions, whether you're John calling himself a disciple who Jesus loved, or you see the influence of physician-like terms like in Luke's gospel, or you see the narrative form play out by Mark, who is clearly taking an oral tradition and putting it in a written tradition. You can see those styles even within the gospel of Mark. We talked about how we work through the gospels, which are biographies. But in the epistles, as we've noted, as well as in books like this, you do have an identification of a writer. And this would be the only book that John the Apostle actually refers to himself by his name. Even in 1 John, he does not claim or write his name. In 2 and 3 John, uh, he lists himself as the elder, which, by the way, we'll get to at some point. And I want to argue for the fact that 2 and 3 John are not John the Apostle, they're John the Elder, who I make uh, a difference between going back to some of Papias's work that's just a snippet for you for the future as we get into some of those books. But in them, none of them have the words, I, John, or the Lord revealed to John, or John to the churches of Ephesus. He does not have that, except here. The message was delivered to John. Now, it does not exactly say John the apostle. Uh, it does say John on the island of Patmos. So history is brought into the equation in addition to a name. But there's still more questions that introduce us into this first chapter that I believe need to be answered. Why did Jesus need to be revealed again? If John wrote an entire narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus, why does he need to be revealed again? After all, it was very likely 
that there's a full-fledged description of Jesus being revealed by John in his gospel to the churches in Ephesus and beyond. Even the testimony of the eyewitnesses can be seen looking at the whole work. You can see that John was writing as an eyewitness, giving an audience a full understanding of who Jesus was and that he himself had come to understand. So what more does John need to reveal to the churches about Jesus that he did not reveal already in his gospel? Now, I believe there's indicators within the text. If we're looking at, say, Revelation chapter 1, in verse number 2, you see similarities of John here on the island of Patmos and the writer of the Gospel of John. In John 1, 2, excuse me, in Revelation 1, 2, this is what is being said of John, the servant who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he, catch it, saw. So he's bearing witness to all that he saw, giving us an indicator again that he is an eyewitness. Now, how does that parallel with the teaching and the writings similar to the word usage of John 21 verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. You see the similarities there, the format of introducing the writer, although again, I believe John was a group gospel, and you can see right there where his writers were penning on behalf of him, while also pointing to him as the disciple who Jesus loved, but making mention that he bore witness about the things that he saw. Now in John's gospel, it is immediately brought out to the fact that he is individually giving this narrative, not as a group. The we clauses, the we statements that are used in John's gospel back in chapter one, and as I just read in chapter 21, we do not see those statements as you find them in the book of Revelation. This is literally John in a one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. By the way, I think that gives us good reason to understand why there are syntactical differences between John's gospel and the book of Revelation. One of the biggest arguments against the authenticity of the book of Revelation is it can't be John. It's something like John's gospel or even his epistle. First John is a lot like John's gospel, but it is not like the book of Revelation. In fact, some would say the book of Revelation, the Greek is so elementary and so bad at places that in our understanding would actually be grammatically incorrect in places. Here's what I want to pose. I want to pose that that is not a problem. I think that makes sense. Going back to the Gospel of John, again, if you missed that, I did an entire two programs on John's Gospel, one of them being called The Making of John's Gospel. I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you have not, showing you why it is significant to understand that John in that text is not the writer or the organizer of the text as much as the information and the eyewitness report. He, along with other companions that were still alive, one named uh, was named for us historically as Andrew, but it seemed that there were more than just he and Andrew who were working together to tell their story about the, the ministry of Jesus. Here, that's not the case. 
John would have had professional scribes in Ephesus orchestrating and organizing his work. And I think that's what happened. And you can go back and hear why I believe that. It could be that John, the older man who's receiving these visions, had to write most of this himself. He did not have the amenuences to help him because it wasn't a group effort to compile a vision or a experience. He was alone. He was marooned on the island of Patmos. And it is just him and this revelation, this unveiling, and he's able to write it. And we even see instances within the text where he explicitly is told to write. So if John grew up a fisherman, as we see him in all four of the Gospels, and John was to continue his education, he no doubt would have been able to probably write. But his writing would not be significant like Paul or with the skill level of somebody like Luke. It would have looked like someone with a basic elementary understanding of sentence structure and writing style. So it could be that the reason the book of Revelation has such, if as some would say, poor Greek bad sentence structure and it's not relatable to John's gospel. It could be because John actually did it with the best education level he had from his background as compared to his gospel being done by professional scribes in a group effort there in Ephesus. That is my view. I believe it's plausible. I think it works. And it's consistent with the style and statements within the writings themselves. The question then still is asked, who was Jesus being hidden from? Because he was unveiled, not just in John's gospel, but the others. Even Paul comes along and unveils aspects of Christ. So why is Jesus being hidden from anybody? And also, why didn't John just speak in plain terminology? To convey his message. Why didn't he just write the way he did in his epistle? Why didn't he just have things written in the way his gospel was put out? Just plain language. Why use a 500-year-old exile language known as apocalyptic literature? Why do it? Well, I think that's where the timeline of the book really is important. And that's where I want to jump in now to the historical side of this. So keep all that in mind. Here's the questions. Why and who? <laughs> Why is this being un unveiled again? When John already gave a testimony, why is it being uh, used in a ancient literary form from the exiles of Isaiah's prophecies forward to the Maccabean Wars and the Jews? Why is this literary form being used again? One that wasn't used by many of the New Testament writers. And if they did, it was very brief. And who is Jesus being hidden from that needs to be unveiled? So let's get into the timeline of the book. So with those questions in mind, let's get in the timeline. Honestly, almost any point you go in church history, the earliest commentaries to those who are part of the discipleship and training of John's teachings and ministry, all place this event 
in the time of Domitian, who was the emperor in Rome. Now, I have my semi-preterist friends. I appreciate some of their desire to see the whole New Testament place before 70 AD. I do not believe if there's one book that cannot work in that time frame, it's the book of Revelation. Now, I know some of you may be listening to this podcast and saying, what about this prophecy? What about this statement? What about the correlation between this vision and that vision and what happened with, listen, I get it. I understand. Here's the reality. Our presuppositional views of eschatology cannot and should not dictate when we place the historical framework layout of this book. The first that we should talk about is Irenaeus. Irenaeus is in the second century. He was trained and discipled by Polycarp, who was trained and discipled by John. We have the closest relationship to John. He was a student of Polycarp. And this is what he said in Against Heresies. He said that John wrote the Apocalypse and that it was not, and it was seen not very long ago, almost in our own generation at the close of the reign of Domitian. This would place us at the end of the first century. Now, Domitian started reigning a lot earlier than the 90s. It was in the 80s. But his end came in the late 90s. And that is what Irenaeus is saying. These events, this vision was seen not too long ago. It was almost actually in our generation when the end of Domitian's reign took place. Now, here's the argument I get from people that actually want to argue, no, no, it's earlier, Irenaeus is wrong. Well, Irenaeus also said that Jesus was older. We're going to believe that too? Okay, <laughs> let's talk about that. Just because Irenaeus has an incorrect fact, a uh, couple things to be stated about that. One, we're assuming those are authentic words and statements of Irenaeus. We, we don't know what's been corrupted or not. I. It's probable that he actually said that, uh, but that's not my argument. I'm just saying it's possible that's something that was interpolated later. Second, um, even if he did say that, it cannot be corroborated with any other work of antiquity. Nobody else, nobody else ever makes that claim about the age of Jesus that is of authentic value. What he says about John on the island of Patmos and at the reign of Domitian at the close of the century is and can be corroborated with far more than anybody who wants to make an argument of pre-70. So you cannot throw Irenaeus out on the basis of he got Jesus's age wrong when there's potential ex explanations for it. And even if he is wrong, it's not able to be confirmed by anybody else. In fact, it's actually debunked by multiple sources when you start getting into the age of Jesus, including the gospel texts themselves talking about Jesus being almost 30 years old. So with that being said, Irenaeus is still viable 
and a worthy and the most worthy candidate to discuss the book of Revelation, given the fact that he was trained under John's teachings through Polycarp. Also, Clement of Alexandria uh, in the second century says that John returned from the island of Patmos after the tyrant was dead. He said that in Who is the Rich Man? And Eusebius, who piggybacks off of Clement there, identifies the tyrant as being described as Domitian in his ecclesiastical history. The earliest surviving commentary of Revelation we have is by Victorinus in the third century. He states this, when John said these things, he was in the island, it was on the island of Patmos, condemned to the minds of Caesar Domitian. There he saw the apocalypse, and at, when at length grown old, he thought that he could receive his release by suffering, but Domitian being killed, he was liberated. So he was on there. He thought he was going to receive his release by suffering. Nope. Domitian ended up dying and he was liberated instead. Jerome said this in the 14th, then after Nero, Domitian, having raised up a second persecution, he being John, was banished to the island of Patmos and wrote the apocalypse. Now we're going to talk about a hint that I think Jerome's giving us there as to what we need to do with that kind of information. How do we prove that? So why did Domitian put John in the island of Patmos? We, we see consistency here between Irenaeus, Clement, Jerome, Victorinus. They're all saying the same thing. He was placed on the island of Patmos. The question that I think it's ignored is why? And then why later is he released? All the other apostles up to that point had been killed that that were a part of that kind of imprisonment. James was beheaded. Later, Peter and Paul were killed for their faith. Why was John Marooned not killed? Well, I, I believe that that's an important question to understanding who was emperor during the time of the writing of the apocalypse. The only way to answer this is by establishing what was going on in the time period. If Victorinus is correct, Clement is correct, Irenaeus is correct. If we're looking at these texts, these statements by Jerome, if they are right, it will help us see a layout and a framework of the time of the book of the apocalypse. We need to understand why John is no longer writing in his usual genre. Why is he moving out of a narrative form or utilizing the same style of plain language? Why is he jumping into this ancient exile apocalyptic literature? Something forced him to recapture the ancient exile genre of apocalyptic literature. More importantly, God sent him the message in this genre, but something forced him to be different. Something forced him to use a different style of writing. And I think the answer is in the writings of Hegesippus, which have been preserved for us by um, Eusebius. And I really believe if we take heed to what's going on in the history, we will see a timeline and be able to prove that Jerome and Irenaeus and Victorinus and Clement and others are correct by placing John at the end of the century in Domitian's reign. Hegesippus, this is said about him when he's reporting these things, dealing with 
uh, Domitian's reign. He is a writer who has investigated Domitian's reign. He's looked into the matter and he starts showing what kind of things took place, what kind of persecution took place. We just saw where Jerome tells us that John was banished on the Isle of Patmos during a second persecution. Don't miss that. A second persecution. Now, it's not the same as the one that you see from Nero, but it is still significant. So when the same Domitian, this is from Hegesippus, had commanded that the descendants of David should be slain, an ancient tradition says that some of the heretics brought accusation against the descendants of Jude, said to have been a brother of the Savior according to the flesh. On the grounds that they were of the lineage of David and related to the Christ himself, Hegesippus relates these facts in the following words. So this is Eusebius giving us Hegesippus's work. So Domitian commanded descendants of David be killed. Why? Well, uh, the Christian communities were teaching that Jesus, the Messiah, would come back. They were teaching of his return and that he would set up his kingdom. And here is Domitian trying to comprehend, is this a threat to my empire? So his goal is to deal with it. Of the family of the Lord, there were living grandchildren of Jude, who is said to have been the Lord's brother according to the flesh. Now, here's what Hegesippus is reporting. There's family bloodline still alive from Jesus. Jude's grandchildren are still around and involved in the church of Jerusalem. Information was given that they belonged to the family of David, and they were brought to the emperor Domitian, for Domitian feared the coming of Christ as Herod also feared it. So Hegesippus is reporting that Domitian is concerned about this king that's coming, just like Herod was when the wise men came to him. Now, what Domitian is fearing is not just a rise of a king, but a massacre of Nero to prevent things. Because obviously Domitian, to some level, had learned what Nero did did not work. It actually advanced their, their agenda, if you would, rather than halted it. Persecution didn't stop Christianity. It, it flourished it. So killing the apostles or killing their leaders doesn't stop the message. And everybody in Rome by that point thought Nero was a psychopath. And Domitian did not want to be lumped in with that category. So he feared two things. He, defeared, he feared being a, a, a Nero, and he feared also being overtaken by his companions that are saying, hey, a king is coming. He's going to relieve us from our problems. So he asked for them as they were to the sentence of David. So what he does, he's, he's doing an investigation. Why wouldn't you? If this descendant is supposedly coming back and going to set up his kingdom on earth, if there's still blood relatives alive, you investigate, you question them. And he asked them, are you descendants of David? They confessed that they were. Then he asked them how much property they had and how much money they had owned. So he's asking, do you have property? How much money do you have? He's trying to figure out what they're up to. Are they a part of this conspiracy? And both of them answer that they had only 9,000 denarii, half of which belonged each to each of them. 
And this property did not consist of silver, but a piece of land which contained only 39 acres and from which they raised their taxes and supported themselves by their own labor. They showed their hands, exhibiting the hardness of their bodies and the callousness produced by their hands and continuous toil as evidence of their own labor. So here's what they're doing. They're proving that they're true taxpayers. They work for what they're doing. They're not conspirators. They're actually farmers. They're working the land. They show the calluses on their hands, that their bodies are worn down from their efforts, that they're not soldiers. They're not military leaders. They're farmers. And they showed that they actually paid their taxes, meaning they're not cheating the Roman government because that's what they're being interrogated for. And then when they were asked concerning Christ and his kingdom of what sort it was and where and when it was to appear, they answered that it was not a temporal or an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly and angelic one, which would appear at the end of the age when he should come in glory to judge the living and the dead and to give unto everyone according to his work. So they're saying, listen, Nero, or or, excuse me, Domitian, I know that you are concerned about this. Nero was too. We understand that you're concerned about the coming of a king, but your understanding of this kingdom is wrong. His kingdom is not a temporal earthly kingdom. It's an angelic and heavenly kingdom. And when he comes back, he's going to judge the world. So they try to correct his understanding of the return of the king. Although Jesus would physically return. Upon hearing this, Domitian did not pass judgment against him. He despised them as of no account and let them go and by a decree put a stop to the persecution of the church. But when they were released, they ruled the churches because they were witnesses and were relatives of the Lord and peace being established. They lived until the time of Trajan. These things are related by Hegesippus and Eusebius reported that for us. So here's what's going on. There's an investigation taking place. Persecution has come on the scene. He, Domitian, does not want to be a Nero and just start hacking away and murdering everybody. He wants to get to the bottom of the story. He investigates the physical bloodline of Jesus that's still alive, and they pretty much show their taxpayers and farmers, not military conspirators. And then when he hears their story about what the kingdom actually is, he thinks they're nuts. So he releases them. Let's consider also this same timeline. Tacitus, when it came to Domitian's He was Domitian's court historian. He said, Nero fastened a guilt and inflicted the most inquisitive tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name has its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, the hands of Pontius Pilate. Others, such as Pliny the Elder, his nephew, uh, Pliny the Younger, and Suetonius wrote letters trying to discover the intentions of Christian gatherings. So here's what's happening. You've got Tacitus saying, hey, there's Christians that are gathering together under the name of this Christ. Uh, They are, here's where they came from. Here's their origin from Pontius Pilate, putting the hands uh, and putting to death this Jesus Christ character. Then you have Pliny the Elder, you have Pliny the Younger, Suetonius. They're all writing letters trying to figure out what are the Christians up to? They are suspicious. That's what Domitian was getting bought into during this time. They are suspicious of these Christian communities. 
We see Rome as a whole is suspicious of the Christian communities. They thought their churches were gathering to conspire against Rome and overthrow them. Domitian separated. So this is what I believe happened. Domitian separated the lock from the key. He banished John and the island of Patmos until he could fully investigate the family bloodline of Jesus, which ended up being Jude's grandsons, to know their intentions of the idea of this kingdom to come. Here's what I believe happened. If Hegesippus is right, the way Domitian was investigative, he's not looking to kill everybody right off the, you know, he's not looking to be a Nero. If Hegesippus' reports is correct, Domitian is an investigation mode, putting an end to the rumors. You got guys like Tacitus, who's a court historian for him. He's talking about the Jewish communities. He's talking about the Christian Jewish communities. He's talking about the Christian community. They're all talking about this kingdom to come, this kingdom to come, the liberation of the, of the believers and all this terminology and Suetonius and Pliny. They're all trying to figure it out. So I believe Domitian separated the lock from the key, the apostle from the church. He put John on an island, marooned him there until he could finish investigating what's happening by interrogating the, the bloodline of Jesus through Jude's descendants. While Domitian is investigating this matter over here, on the right, on the autopathmus, Jesus says, okay, while you're doing your investigation, I'm going to do my own thing. While you're trying to figure out my timing and work, I'm going to unveil all that John and the churches need to know. If God delivered the message of the book of Revelation in plain language to John, it would endanger the Christian communities. Here's my hypothesis, folks. Here's my hypothesis. After this interrogation, Domitian let him go. And John is later released off the island. If John comes out and just starts shooting out plain terminology, I think it endangers the Christian communities on these two fronts. First, it would make them look like liars to the Roman government. If Jude's grandsons are coming out saying, we're not a threat to Rome, we pay taxes. And then some, we're hard workers, we're farmers, we're not conspirators. Think about the language. Think about the language. We see terminology like Babylon has fallen. These are code terms. These are exile terms. It's not physical Babylon. It is a term used in apocalyptic literature going back to, again, the exile. Peter does the th same thing when he closes. He says the church of Babylon. He's talking about the church at Rome. See, they viewed themselves as exiles, just as they did in the time of Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah. All of these terms they're using, they're using Old Testament terms as, as really code words of viewing themselves as being in an exile. So if, if you have verses, for example, in the book of Revelation that say Babylon has fallen and it talks about how the economics is going to be destroyed. It talks about how the ships are going to be destroyed. It's commerce, trade routes, militarily, it's going to be defeated. 
you take a letter like that, when you have Jude's grandchildren saying, we're not a threat, we're not overthrowing Rome, and then they get this letter from the Apostle John, and it plainly states, uh, Rome has fallen, its commerce is destroyed, its merchandise is destroyed, its armies are defeated. It's going to make the churches who are investigated by Domitian look like liars. So that's number one. Number two, it would look like battle plans, as I just stated, passed on from church to church with the intent to overthrow Rome. If this letter was captured in plain language, the Romans would misunderstand and misapply it. And the Christians would look like conspirators. I believe one of the reasons that God had John unveil the language of exile to the churches is to prevent Roman officials from misunderstanding and misapplying its content. Is Jesus going to come back? Yes. Is he going to overthrow the, the rule of Rome in some ways? Yes. Is there going to be even a destructive nature that happens to Rome historically? Yes. I believe many of the things that John says there are pointed at Rome and did happen. I don't think they happened in 70 AD. I think they had later in their fall and their economics. I think it's more in line with things like that. Even if you place the events there, if this letter was circulating around the churches, it's going to look like battle plans. It's going to look like conspiracy. Meanwhile, the churches are being tried and saying, no, that's not our intent here. It would make them look like liars and it would cause problems. I think it's an act of grace and mercy that God revealed to John the things he did in the format he did. Because here's the reality. You have to be caught up in Jewish apocalyptic literature and understanding of its literary form to interpret the entirety of the message of the apocalypse of John. The book of Revelation must be understood with only knowing what the Old Testament scripture said in the same format. Pagan Roman officials and leaders would not have the key to unlock the message of the apocalypse. Only the churches had the key, and that key was the Old Testament Jewish text. You don't believe me. The book of Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than anybody when it comes to its allusions, its absolute statements, and its fulfillments, and its finalities. It is formatted and built on the Old Testament scripture, from the Exodus story to the exile terminology, all the way to the fulfillment of the messianic hope long prophesied in Genesis to the book of Isaiah to the end prophecies of Zechariah and Malachi. It is, it is the consummation of the entire Old Testament. And the only way to understand its content is to know the literary forms of apocalyptic literature given by the prophets of God in the ancient past. It is a protective form to give a message to the churches without contradicting the testimony of the leaders who are telling the Roman governors, we are not coming into this to destroy you. We are farmers, not conspirators. It is, I believe, a form of protecting the churches. However, if it were delivered in the ancient prophetic genre of the apocalyptic literature, Christians could understand it. That things like Babylon has fallen, the number 666, 
terms thousand years, lion, lamb, these images going back to Isaiah 6, going to Isaiah's understanding of who Messiah would be through the branch and through the lamb and through the bloodshed, through the terminology of the souls. All of that is, is encamped in the Old Testament scriptures. It is a form of protective anonymity. So I believe that gives us folks an accurate timeline of the events. I do believe that confirms what we've learned from Jerome and Clement and Irenaeus and Victorinus, that this is without a doubt going back to the time of Domitian. It lines up with when Domitian marooned John in the island of Patmos. It makes sense why he did that. He separated lock and key. He put it out there. And it makes sense that John would use these literary forms going back to exile language in full statement to actually, as Hegesippus tells us, shows that Jude's family was being interrogated about the return of Jesus. And here's John getting a message about the return of Jesus. <laughs> and how do you protect the leaders of the church from looking like liars? Well, you unveil it to them in a way where Roman officials and leaders would not misunderstand it. The book of Revelation is greatly misunderstood and that most of it is that due to the fact that we don't understand the Old Testament and we don't understand the literary form. The book of Revelation is one of the most disputed books later in history, but it was not disputed in the earliest portions and layouts of the church. Hear me. The book of Revelation did not become debated in the church until really the fourth century and later. The earliest attestation of the book of Revelation is well-received and fully understood as Johannan. It became a pattern of other works almost copying and, and using the same format. Whether you're talking about the Shepherd of Hermas, you're talking about the Apocalypse of Paul, the Apocalypse of Peter, or the Apocalypse of James, whatever you're looking at in these later editions, the apocalyptic literature became popularized because of John's. It was not the regular format writing, but it was forced to be, I believe, because of the circumstances, which place us in the time of Domitian. And when you go through some of the prophetic nature of the, the prophecies, it actually makes sense that it unveils itself and fully lays out itself for the next 100 to 200 years for Rome that could not have been fulfilled in 70 AD. 70 AD was not a disaster for Rome, it was a disaster for the Jews. There's so many problems in the interpretation side of things Really, if we try to sandwich this thing right before 70 AD, I think it actually hurts. I think it brings damage. In closing, I want to bring up this one point. In the book of Revelation, we also begin to see that John is the last eyewitness and prophet to ever speak. <laughs> the question that continually gets asked is, why, why doesn't God just speak like he did back then? Why doesn't why does the canon get closed? Can we put it that way? Why did the canon get closed down? Who said Revelation is the last book? Who says that John gets the last statement? Well, I believe that God in the text reveals why. In chapter 10, verse 5 through 11, you have this angel standing on the sea in his right hand to heaven. Swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it. 
and the sea that was in it, and there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call by the sound of the seventh angel, a mystery of God would be fulfilled. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants and prophets. And then he goes through this eat the scroll thing. Uh, the scroll is meant to impact everyone, everywhere, for all times. You say, how do you know that? Well, the last words in verse 11, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings, plural. Now, typically when a prophet of God was sent to give a message, it was given to one per one people group, uh, one nation uh, that typically spoke one language, hence the Old Testament is almost predominantly in the Hebrew language and parts of it in Aramaic. And then it's written to a king on most occasions. Go back to the prophecies of any of the Old Testament. You'll find that it's particularly written to Jews. There, or, or when God sends them outside of Israel, like Jonah or Nahum, they go to Nineveh. They speak the message there. But typically the message is not just for uh, multiple nations. Now, there are places where Amos seems to do that and others. I, I understand that. But as a whole, the message that God gives to prophets is typically not universal. Now, the scene that we get here is that John eats the scroll, just like you see in Ezekiel 2, 8 through chapter 3, verse 3. He's told to eat the scroll, and it was sweet to the lips, but it was bitter to digest. The words were the words of God, so they were pleasant. But once they were understood and applied, it was bitter. The prophecy it contained was more difficult to digest than it was to initially receive. Because in understanding it, you find that the full end of their judgment that he's about to proclaim is brought to fulfillment, and it's severe. Now, in this, you have an initiation. John is initiated as a prophet, just like Ezekiel, who happened to be an apocalyptic prophet. Ironic. John is included in the prophetic ministry of God as other prophets before him. In this passage, you have the phrase that I read to you, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. So what God is about to do here in this trumpet, he's about to give him this scroll. And in this scroll, this message is a universal message, but it's going to bring the mystery of God. Similar wording that you see in the illusions of like Amos chapter three, verse seven, where God only reveals his secrets to the prophets. But this is not just a prophecy of unveiling. It's a prophecy of fulfilling. It's ironic this passage correlates with how John ended his gospel in chapter 21, verse 18 through 24, where he realized that he was going to outlive Peter and that God was going to keep him around to the end of the age. So what it seems to be alluding to, I should say. But what it means is that John realized I'm the last messenger of God that he's going to keep around. And that in this final message, the mystery of God that's been unveiled through the prophets, he has given me the responsibility to find it and see it and report it fulfilled. It indicates that he's the last of the prophetic ministry. He's the last one to whom God speaks through. Because remember, according to Hebrews 1, God only speaks to the prophets. 
and through his son. And the only ones who heard the son are eyewitnesses. John is both. In this passage, he is both the eyewitness, go back to chapter one, and the prophet to the world. Not the prophet to Israel, the prophet to the world. Notice again, the scroll was meant to impact everybody. The last verse, verse 11 of this chapter, it says, <clears throat> going into the, now, now I, want, I don't want you to lose your thought here. How do we know John is the last spokesman? Well, God is giving him a vision to show him you're going to bring all the mystery, the revelation of the prophets to fulfillment. But it's not going to be just a single message to a single people, to a single language, and to a single king. It's for all people, all nations, all languages, all kings. He said, again, you must prophesy about many people's nations. Isn't it ironic that in this section here, in chapter number nine, going into 10, <clears throat> you have the angel blowing his trumpet. And in this prophetic statement, you have it going through his unveiled ministry. And then after this comes the return at the seventh trumpet. So if you follow the framework, we don't have time to get into the apocalyptic literature here. But when you follow the framework of the layout of what's happening, this judgment is coming, which typically happens on the sixth, whether it's the bold judgment, the trumpet judgment. What, the sixth is the judgment on man, the world. The seventh is Christ returning and protecting and taking in his people and bringing justice into the world. So if this is toward the end of this, going into the trumpet judgments, if this is the finality before the return of the seventh trumpet, John is the last spokesman for all peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And then after his prophetic statement is brought to fulfillment and he unveils the mystery, all that's left for God to say to humanity is going to be ended with John. And then what's after that? The return. Christ's return. God has no more messages for humanity that he's going to unveil. No more mysteries. No more secrets that he reveals to the prophets. John is the last living apostle, eyewitness, and prophet. He brings it all to fulfillment. He's the last. He's got the last message. We don't need new revelation. We don't need another book from God. He is and understood himself to be the last, the end, the last one that God would use to speak his final message to humanity until his return. And that we see unravel here. So in conclusion, John the Apostle, I believe, wrote this letter. I believe he got the vision. He did it in the format that he did to protect the churches while Domitian was investigating. And God in his grace did that, giving him the authority to be the last prophet and the last eyewitness who gives the last message to humanity and brings the new Eden back in the last portion of the book. Eden is restored forever. The kingdom of heaven is established on earth and the new heaven, new earth. God makes all things new. Justice is served. Judgment is served. The end. That's it. That's the message for us. So I do believe John the Apostle wrote this as historically shown. I think it correlates with his gospel. It correlates with the timing of Domitian, the investigation. So the book of Revelation, I believe, is authentic. It belongs in our canon and it ends our canon for that purpose. So thanks again for tuning in for another episode. I trust this will be a blessing to you. Share, like, and subscribe to our page, our work. 
what we do at explorechristianity.net. We'd appreciate your prayers and your support financially. You can find that on the website as well as we continue to do these studies and endeavors. We thank you for all your support that's already been given to us and the good feedback we get. I trust that as we move forward through these other books of the Bible, God will show you their truth and authenticity as well. Grace and peace to you.